We're turning again this morning to the Gospel of Mark, and we left the Lord Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, uh, celebrating the Passover meal, uh, the last Passover uh, that uh, they were going to have, and Jesus instituted the first uh, supper, which we call the Lord's Supper, which we will also uh, be uh, celebrating this evening. So make sure you have your piece of bread and uh, fruit juice ready for that. And now we're going to take up the account in Mark chapter 14, just a few verses, and we'll read uh, verse 26 down to verse 31 of Mark chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, look at verses 26 to 31 of Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, Yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Now from the upper room in Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, it would have been about half a mile. And uh, in order to get to the Mount of Olives, they would have gone down to the Kidron Valley. And uh, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. So here, uh, Jesus and the 11 disciples, because Judas Iscariot has already gone uh, to betray him, uh, are going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus Christ here is in complete control. He knows that he's going to die in uh, a few hours' time, I think about 15 hours. Uh, he uh, is uh, gracious and he is dealing with the situation with such a poise and authority. Uh, it is quite remarkable. He's descending, not just into uh, Gethsemane, but metaphorically he's descending into the darkness and agony uh, that he's going to suffer in that garden. And then, of course, uh, the greater shadow and darkness of Calvary is looming over him. And yet, in the midst of all of this, he is showing such poise uh, that it is quite remarkable. And I want to look this morning just at one verse because I think Jesus Christ uh, was comforted by an Old Testament prophecy. He uses it to warn his disciples that they're all going to be scattered. They're all going to leave him as he's going to be arrested in the garden. Uh, that's what he says. And then he quotes, and this is the verse I want us to look at, from the prophet Zechariah, the reading that we had in Zechariah. 13 verse 7 we've got the full verse 
Jesus only quotes a part of it. But I would like us to consider this morning the whole verse. And let me just read it to you again. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. And this is what the Lord quotes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this verse is a gospel gem, you know. Uh, even in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Zechariah is full of gospel gems. And the one we're going to look at uh, is certainly one of those. And there are three things I want us to consider uh, this morning. First, the shepherd. Secondly, the sword. And thirdly, the sheep. So you've got no excuse uh, not to remember those three points. The shepherd. We shouldn't have any problem with the identity of the shepherd here because Jesus Christ uses this prophecy to refer to himself. What a lovely description of Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe the most famous uh, description of all is what David said of the Lord. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But there are other Old Testament verses that describe Christ as the shepherd. Uh, Psalm 80 uh, says he's the shepherd of Israel, thou shepherd of Israel. And then uh, when you come to the New Testament, uh, Jesus himself, referring to those Old Testament passages, says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Uh, Hebrews uh, calls him, uh, chapter 13, the great shepherd, the doxology at the end of Hebrews. Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, calls him the chief shepherd. And also Peter in chapter 2 says he's the shepherd of our souls. 1 Peter, the second chapter. And in the Bible, the shepherd in uh, those times didn't just uh, look after and protect the sheep as shepherds still do today, but they would lead the sheep. The shepherd would go ahead of the sheep and try to look for the best pasture so that the flock could be fed. And isn't that what Jesus Christ is to many of us this morning? Uh, he provides pastors who are under shepherds. That's what I am. I'm here this morning to bring spiritual food to you. But it's only Jesus Christ who is the shepherd. Uh, he's the chief shepherd. Uh, we're not to follow pastors, however good they may be at preaching. But Jesus Christ is the one that we are to follow. And as we look at this gem of a verse this morning, uh, it's not my voice you should be listening to, uh, but the voice of Jesus speaking through uh, his servants. Can you say uh, Jesus Christ is my shepherd? Is it Christ that we are rejoicing in this morning? Uh, or uh, have we fallen into the trap of Welsh nonconformity and making different preachers to be the ones that we are following?
even the poorest of preachers can be used of Jesus Christ if he, by his spirits, is speaking through them. You know, what I find astounding about shepherds is how they can tell the difference between uh, their sheep. Uh, and for us uh, lay people, uh, all sheep look the same, don't they? But a good shepherd will know each sheep. He will be able to distinguish each one personally. And that's what Jesus Christ is like. He knows his own sheep by name, by name. We are given numbers when we come to church. We have to do that. But there are no numbers when it comes to this shepherd of the flock. He knows you and calls you by name. What a shepherd. And he loves us so much that in order that we might be saved, he laid down his life for us on the cross, as we'll be seeing shortly. Now then, why is Jesus Christ such a good shepherd? Aren't you proud to be one of his sheep? Why is he described in such lovely ways? Well, he's a man to begin with. Uh, look at how Zechariah puts it. My shepherd against the man, the man with a capital M. Uh, when Pilate uh, was putting Jesus Christ before the crowd, uh, it was to happen a little later. He said, behold, the man, Eke Homo. There's a very famous picture in All Souls Langham Place in central London, uh, and it's entitled, Behold the Man. That's what makes Jesus Christ such a suitable shepherd for his flock. He is a perfect human being. A man there is, a real man, as we sang in our second hymn. Let me just go through just a few things that are true of Jesus Christ that is also true of you and I. And he's such an ideal shepherd. He had and has a real body. And when he was here on earth, that body suffered the same things that we have to go through. He knew what it was like to suffer hunger pangs. He knew what it was like to be in pain, chronic pain. He would have got ill and he would have known what it was like to be exhausted. But he wasn't just a body. Some people mistakenly think of Jesus Christ as having a human body and then a divine soul. But no, he had a human soul as well, a real soul, a sensitive soul. And he went through all the things that get at us. Uh, he uh, knew what it was to suffer loss. He wept and he knew what it was to uh, be uh, burdened in his soul. And he knew what it was to be tempted in his soul. I think he would have been tempted in everything, uh, as the word says, tempted in all points. So whatever temptation uh, you may be going through, however unique you may think that temptation to be, Jesus Christ is an ideal shepherd because he knows what it's like 
to go through exactly the same temptation. But he never fell. He never sinned. But that doesn't mean to say he can't get alongside you. And he went through all the range of human experience. As we'll be remembering at Christmas time, he was born a baby. So that meant he had to grow up. He knew what it was to be a child. He knew what it was to be a teenager. He knew what it was to be a young man. He knew what it was to go through life. In other words, he can empathize with you. He can get alongside you. Uh, look at uh, the Lord Jesus in terms of these things. Spurgeon said, do not ever set Jesus Christ up so high as to imagine that his humanity was not like yours so that he cannot sympathize with you for then you cannot sympathize with him. And that the next thing will be that you cannot love him and that you cannot trust him and that you cannot come unto him. Believe, beloved, that he was in all points, such as you are, such as we are, the exception of our sin. He had weaknesses, infirmities, such as you have. He felt such aches and pains as trouble you. And the depressions and downcastings that vex your spirits. What a man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was only about 30-something when he died, but people mistook him for a 50-year-old because the burdens of this life had aged him so much. Don't you love this shepherd? If you're still away from him, haven't come to him yet? Oh, don't you want to have this man as your saviour and your Lord? But of course, in this verse, he's not just a man, is he? He is my companion, my shepherd, the man, my companion. What does that mean? It means he's God's fellow. I know that's an old-fashioned word. Uh, maybe we would say associates, confidants, somebody you share everything with, even your innermost secrets. God's equal. God's equal. Uh, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it, Jesus Christ isn't just a man. He's very God of very God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. God himself in human flesh. The word was with God. Jesus is the word. And the word was God. Jesus himself said, I and the father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. That's what makes him such an ideal shepherd. That's why he and he alone is the good, the great, the chief shepherd of the sheep. Let me quote again Joseph Hart's hymn, which we sang. Whatever your condition this morning, my friend, this wondrous man of whom we tell is true almighty God, 
he bought our souls from death and hell, the price his own heart's blood. That's love for you. That human hearts he still retains, though throned in highest bliss, and feels each tempted member's pains for our afflictions his. He's not so aloof that he's unapproachable. You can come to him this morning and bring your sins and your sorrows and cast them at his feet. The man, that's who he is, the God-man. Then the second thing I want us to look at is the sword. Because it's not just the shepherd that you have here, but you have, O sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Strike the shepherd, the sword. Now then, what do we mean by sword here? Obviously, it's a weapon. But in the Bible, a sword is also a sign of authority. And the wielding of the sword is attributed uh, to those in authority uh, wielding the sword of justice. Uh, so in Romans, for example, we are told that we're to obey the governments because they wield the sword. Even if they don't do it literally today, uh, they still have the power to punish wrongdoing. Now, that's what we must understand here when it comes to the sword. It's not a human government that we're thinking of, but the uh, uh, authority in the universe, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one uh, who has all authority and who is just, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's who God is. And he is the one who ultimately punishes uh, sin. Uh, people seem to get away with evil in this world, but they will never get away with it completely because they must stand one day, as we must all do, before God, who is our judge. But there's something very significant about the sword here, because we may think that it's certain people who deserve God's punishment for the wrong that they have done. It's always the same names, isn't it? Hitler. Pol Potts, uh, and all those terrible uh, men of the past. But you know what? The Bible says all have sinned. This sword is mentioned first in Genesis. Uh, when our first parents were created, Adam and Eve were perfect, and God set them in a perfect paradise, the Garden of Eden. And then... They disobeyed God. That's sin, right? Disobedience. All they did was eat of the forbidden fruits. That wasn't an outrageous thing, was it? But this is the essence of sin. You see, we are horrified today when we hear about the justice of God and about God punishing, wielding the sword of justice against people who are sinners. But what we really should be horrified about is the fact that sin, this rebellion against God, is exceeding sinful. So it's not just the Hitlers and the Pol Pots of this world that deserve God's judgments, 
But every one of us, even if we haven't committed the vile crimes that they have committed, in our hearts there is a rebellion. And that's what made eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden so heinous. It was the creature. That's what you and I are. We're just creatures. Rebelling against the one who had created them. And God thrust our parents out of the Garden of Eden. And death came into this world. The soul that sins shall die. And do you remember what God did? He set a flaming sword to guard paradise. So there's no way back to paradise in our own works. There's a sword of justice, God's justice, barring the way. None of us can make ourselves right with God. We can't get to paradise because we are sinners and God is just and holy and must punish sin. Well, that doesn't sound like good news, you say. Well, that's the bad news that comes before the gospel. Because what the Bible is all about, all the way from Genesis 3, right to the last book, Revelation, where you have paradise regained, is not about how you and I, by our own religiosity or good works, can set things right, but how God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has made a way so that we can regain paradise. Milton said, paradise lost. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, paradise regained. And it's not at the expense of God's justice. The sword is still wielded. But this is the wonderful thing. The sword isn't wielded against you and I but against the shepherd, even God's son. He came into this world to be our substitutes. That, that's what we're going to look at here. And, and this is the gospel. You know, if you, if you want to define the gospel in a nutshell, that's it. Jesus Christ, our substitutes. He kept the law. On our behalf. That's why he had to go through the full range of human experience. We have failed, but Jesus Christ came in order to do what we cannot do to keep the law on our behalf, and he did it perfectly. But then he's going to go to that cross and he's going to suffer the punishments. He's going to be stricken by the sword of God's wrath. Let me read what one commentator says. These are really important words. This is what Moore said. The death of Christ, not just a demonstration of the love of God toward us. It is that. But the death of Christ is a judicial act in which he endured the penalty of the law whose penal power was symbolized by the sword of divine wrath. The sheep had deserved the blow. But the shepherd bears his own bosom to that sword and is wounded for the sins of his people 
and bears those sins in his own body on the tree. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus Christ suffered in his body on the tree. He suffered excruciating pain. He was whipped before he went to the cross. He was uh, put a crown of thorns on his head. And that went into uh, his uh, body and it caused him to bleed copiously. Uh, his hands and his feet were nailed to a wooden cross. And he had a spear thrust through his side so that blood and water came out. And he suffered agony, mental, physical, agony and shame on the cross. But the sword pierced not just his body, but his soul, his soul, the wrath of God being exposed. Uh, Isaac Watts put it like this. Alas. It's not a light thing that Jesus did on the cross. Alas. Did my saviour bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Oh, my friend, have you seen it? Jesus was my substitute on that cross. My sins nailed him to the tree. My sins pierced him. But what's more astounding here is who commands the sword to strike the shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd. My dear friends, it is none other than God the Father who gives command to the sword to strike his only begotten son. Now, some people, even dare I say evangelicals, have described this whole concept as tantamount to cosmic child abuse. But let me say, that is utter nonsense. Listen, Jesus Christ willingly gave his life for the sheep. It's an interesting question, isn't it? There's a book by John Blanchard, I think, with the title, Who Put Jesus on the Cross? How come he, the perfect son of God, is hanging there? Now, it could be said that Satan was behind all of it, uh, going into Judas Iscariot's heart so that he would betray his master. It could also be said that the Jewish leaders plotting to execute Jesus were responsible to put him on the cross. It was to them that Judas betrayed Jesus. And it could also be said 
that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was responsible because the Jews couldn't uh, crucify anybody. They didn't have it in their laws. And yet, over and above all of that, Jesus planned it. When he was here on earth during his ministry, there came a turning point where he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he had to do, and he was most willing to do it. Uh, didn't he say himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. If it was child abuse, Jesus would not have spoken in such a way. But even before he came into this world, uh, as we sang in the first hymn, far before time when salvation's way for sinners lost and done was planned in the council of eternity by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son agreed that in time he would become a man and that he would die for the sins of his people in order that they may be delivered. Praise be to God. He was willing, most willing. But then you see, God the Father was also willing. Now, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, for God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In the original, it starts with, so loved God the world. And what's so important here is that God had to command the sword to awake because the sword was asleep when it came to Jesus Christ. The sword was inoperative. Why? Because Jesus Christ was a perfect human being. He did not deserve death. Even Pontius Pilate had to say, I find no basis to charge this man. God had to command divine justice to strike his son because he didn't deserve to die. And what's amazing in all of this is God used everything, the Plots of the religious leaders, Judas betraying Jesus because of Satan and Pontius Pilate's cowardice. He used all of this to bring about his plan of salvation. Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by sinful hands and crucified and put to death. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Alec Motia says, out of the wealth of God's resources, he paid debts that were no concern of his. Jesus paid our debts too great for us by his own blood. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon again. I know I'm dwelling on this second point, but this is the crux 
of our salvation. This is how Spurgeon puts it. The bruisings of the Roman scourge were terrible, but his father's bruisings were far worse. That was the keenest agony of all, which made him cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was God who awakened the sword and God who smote the shepherd with power omnipotence, which if Christ had not been omnipotent, would have utterly destroyed him. But because Christ is all powerful, because Christ is infinite, because Christ's blood has infinite worth. He could take the punishments for an infinite number of people in a matter of three hours. And his blood has infinite efficacy to cleanse you and me from our sins, however great they may be. I came across this hymn. I don't think it's in our hymn book. Describing this verse very vividly. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken by thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Hallelujah. Not one stroke of the sword comes upon me because it's been taken by Jesus Christ. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Jehovah bade the sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade must slake. Thy heart, its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleep that sword for me. Praise God, now sleeps that sword for me. The sword isn't going to be struck against you if you are in Christ. Praise God. Now, my last points, and very quickly, is the sheep. How, how can I, how can I be the sheep of Jesus Christ so that I can go to heaven, saved at last through his precious blood, so that I, even in this life, can know an assurance in my heart that there is no condemnation for me before a holy God, because another one has taken it on my behalf. Now, Jesus applies these words of Zechariah immediately to his disciples. He said the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. So these are true Christians now who are going to fall away. But it's also true of all humanity. The Bible says, Isaiah uh, chapter 53 describes us as sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, every one turning his own way. And this is the message of the gospel. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But if any sheep is to be rescued, the good shepherd must come after them. And even if there's only one lost sheep, the good shepherd's love is such that he will go after that one lost sheep. But it's not just one lost sheep. It's every one of us 
who are lost by nature. But you this morning may feel like the lost sheep. But my friend, this is the good news. Jesus Christ came into this world and he comes after you. Uh, when I was converted, I thought, at last, I found him. I found Jesus Christ. I see he died for me. I don't have to do anything to make myself right with God. But after a while, I realized it wasn't just I found him, but he found me. I was lost. Couldn't do anything. Didn't have the strength. But Jesus found me. Found the sheep that went astray. Has he found you? Is he coming after you? Even in my little sermon, my weak words, is he speaking to you? I've not known that many shepherds. John and Mary up in uh, Bala. Uh, they've gone now to glory. Uh, those were one of the few uh, shepherds that I got to know. And Mary has written a lovely book in the shadow of Aran, it's called, describing their experiences as uh, shepherds and bringing spiritual lessons out of it. And one of my favourite accounts in that book is about one of their sheep in the mountains, the Aran, the very rocky mountains. And there are many cliffs there. And... Uh, Sometimes a sheep uh, would climb down the cliff and get stuck on a ledge and it wouldn't be able to climb back up and there'd be a sheer drop uh, below and it'd be trapped and the sheep would uh, bleat. I think that's what sheep do. The sheep would bleat. And John, the shepherd, because he knew the sheep, would recognise that one of the sheep was missing. And so he would go out actively looking for that lost sheep and he would be listening for the bleat of the sheep. Meh, meh. I don't know how they do it, but something like that is what a bleat sounds like. And having heard the bleats, uh, he would locate the sheep and he would see that the sheep is stuck there on the ledge and then he wouldn't do anything. And we may say, what a hard, cruel man. But no, John would go back home and the next day he would come back to the same spot and he would listen again to the bleats of the sheep. And he would do that until he found a note of desperation in the bleats. You may have heard sheep bleating. Mah, mah. There's no strength left. And when he noted that, he would get a rope and he would abseil down to the ledge. And he would grab hold of the sheep. The sheep wouldn't have any strength. John would wait for that moment. Because if he would have gone down before then, the sheep would have had enough strength to panic when it saw John coming down. And instead of jumping into his arms, the sheep would probably have jumped over the edge to its death. And I think that's how the Lord often calls us and brings us to himself. He brings us to that point of desperation where we realise, as Howell preached very powerfully last Sunday morning, nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. I've got no strength, no merits, no goodness. Simply to thy cross I cling.
All we can do is cast ourselves on Jesus Christ. As the hymn I quoted says, I was lost, but Jesus found me. Found the sheep that went astray through his loving arms around me. Drew me back into his way. Zechariah says a little later in the chapter that we read, God is speaking through the prophets. They will call on my name and I will answer them. Whoever shall call in that way, desperate to be saved, shall be heard. If we're just playing around with God, if one moment we think we want to be saved and another moment we just want to have it our own way, that's not going to be heard. Have we called on the name of the Lord? We can't save ourselves. Jesus must do everything. But that's not easy believism. Easy believism is just up here. Oh no, this is a heart cry to the Lord to take us as we are. And when he has recovered us, oh, that's not religion then. That's real Christianity because we're so grateful to him. He loved me, gave himself for me. And that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because now our life is one of following, not our own hearts, but the good shepherd. All the way my saviour leads me. What have I to ask beside? Whether he leads me to green pastures beside still waters, or even if he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, so be it. Because he's leading us one place where some of our flock have already gone these last few weeks. He's leading us home. Home. Do you have a yearning? Yes, that the Lord would save you if you're not saved. But if you are saved, do you have a yearning for that land where the unnumbered throng? extol that death that sword striking the shepherd on Calvary in heaven's unending song you know if you are saved you've got I've got something worth singing about or should I say someone worth singing about I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me praise God Paradise lost, yes, but not just paradise regained, but more, more regained through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 